everyone, Steve here, and welcome to the Backcountry Gallery Wildlife Photography Podcast. This is episode number four. In this episode, I'm going to start with making good on that promise I made in episode three to discuss VR and shutter speeds, and then we'll go on to answer some burning questions about when to hold down the AF button when shooting back button AF, and when to just let that sucker go. Next, we're going to talk about if you should set the color space on your camera to sRGB or Adobe RGB. And finally, we're going to talk about how you can know when you should maybe use a tripod versus a monopod or, you know, sometimes maybe a beanbag. Which one of those should you use and when should you use them? But first, a word about follow-ups. You know, sometimes when doing a podcast or a video, I may miss a point or another interesting viewpoint may come to light. So if you have the time, remember to check the show notes page on my website for any additional follow-up information on the topics discussed in the podcast. Plus there's a comment section on that page as well. So you can share your thoughts about the podcast, maybe ask questions or, you know, just give me an opinion on anything that you like. So anyhow, let's get to stabilization and shutter speeds. And once again, just like in episode three, please note that I'm kind of using the term VR pretty loosely to encompass just stabilization in general. If I'm saying Nikon VR, then I am specifically talking about Nikon, but I don't want to have to go through and say stabilization and steady shot and VR every single time that it comes up. So anyhow, first off though, this is basically part two of our VR discussion. In podcast number three, we talked VR and tripods. This time, it's VR and shutter speed. Specifically, what shutter speeds should you use with VR and which ones should you avoid? Or can we just leave VR on all the time and just not worry about it anymore? Well, the truth is that you're probably not going to love the answer here because it's the same as what we faced when we talked tripods. It depends. First, let's talk about the problem before we get to the shutter speeds. On some lenses, as shutter speed gets higher and higher, you can suffer a loss of acuity due to the way the activity of the VR system sort of interacts with higher shutter speeds. The thing is, there are a ton of variables that come into play with any stabilization system. I mean, you have the sampling rate of the lens, you have the precision of the gyros in the lens, you have the type of movement on the shooter's part, you have the mass of the overall system, the movement of the focal plane shutter across the sensor, or the sensor read time if you have an electronic shutter, plus the mass and inertia of the VR group itself, and you can couple all of this with completely unpredictable field conditions. Now I had thought about going into each of those aspects I just mentioned in detail, but I was afraid that I would put anyone listening to this podcast in their car into a deep slumber and it would cause some kind of a pile up on the highway. And you know, honestly, none of it changes the bottom line, which is sometimes higher shutter speeds can cause a loss of acuity with some lenses. I mean, sometimes this happens on every shot, sometimes only a few shots, and sometimes you don't see it at all. In my experience with stabilization systems, a lot from Nikon, a little tiny bit from Canon, and now a limited amount with Sony, you know, there really are not specific one-size-fits-all shutter speeds that I can just kind of dish out and give you for when to use stabilization and when not to. It honestly, it varies by lens and it can actually vary quite a bit. Let's look at a couple examples. You know, first off, with any of the big exotic primes I've used, like the Nikon 600E, my old 600G and my old 500G, the 180 to 400E, and now even my 500PF, you know, those lenses, they don't seem like they really care that much if I keep VR on all the time at any shutter speed especially for situations where I'm more stationary and I'm not moving the rig around a lot. 
However, there are times I see minor random losses of acuity if there is some movement on my part. Maybe I'm panning or maybe I'm just not being as stable as I possibly can. However, one place you got to be careful is at marginal shutter speeds. Like maybe I'm hand holding my 600 and it's at 1 1250th of a second or maybe it's at 1000 or 800th of a second. At those shutter speeds, especially if I'm kind of tired and it's been a long day and I'm maybe not as stable as I'd like to believe, you know, I see a loss of acuity there. It's kind of easy to say, oh, maybe, you know, there's something going on with VR when a lot of times it's, you know, just me not being able to keep things steady after seven or eight hours of shooting. So, you know, you have to kind of be careful whether the loss of acuity is actually because of the VR system or whether or not it's maybe technique or maybe it's a combination of both. You never know. So there's a lot of variables. Still, when I have tested those big primes with both VR on and VR off in the same conditions using those higher shutter speeds, if I'm in a more stationary situation, I'm not moving around too much, you know, I honestly can never tell the difference from one image to the next when I'm closely examining those final images. And additionally, I have plenty of tack sharp images of things like flying birds at high shutter speeds with my big glass when I forgot to turn off the VR and honestly the majority look just fine and in my opinion have excellent acuity. On the other hand, I can often see a difference with less expensive glass such as something like the 200 to 500 but not just that lens. There are other less expensive lenses that I do see it with as well and I'm not trying to disparage your glass. I'm not trying to pick on the 200 to 500. I'm just saying that if I'm shooting the 200 to 500, I typically shut VR off after I've reached beyond 1 500th of a second of shutter speed. And while I don't shoot that lens all the time, I'm not super experienced with it. I do use it every now and then, but I'm more of a prime shooter. But when I have shot it, I do seem to experience some loss of acuity at faster shutter speeds. Now the 300PF is another great example, and it's a little bit of a weird lens because the best shutter speeds for VR with that lens are typically between 1 250th and 1 500th of a second. Over 500, yeah, it can vary, and it seems to kind of vary depending on the mass of the camera. The VR system, and this is anecdotal, just seems to do a little bit better with larger gripped cameras than it does on smaller cameras, but not every time. And I'm not even sure I can actually prove that. The larger versus smaller camera thing is more of a seat of the pants observation than anything else. But just know that 1 250th to 1 500th of a second recommendation, now that's not a seat of the pants thing. That's something I've kind of experienced and that really does seem to be kind of the sweet spot for the VR on that lens. And when people hear that, they're sometimes a little disappointed. They're like, wow, there's only really one stop of good usable VR on the 300PF. That's not really what I'm trying to get at here. First, I want to emphasize the 1 250th to 1 500th range seems to work best. That doesn't mean the other stuff is terrible. It just means that that range is the best. And I do have a tip for you as well. If you do have a 300PF and you want to use that sweet spot of VR shutter speed range there, try manual with auto ISO. I have a video that explains how to use it, but manual with auto ISO makes sticking to a shutter speed the 300PF likes much, much easier. You can just set in a shutter speed like maybe 320th of a second or 400th of a second or whatever you like right in that range and then let the camera just float the ISO so you can stay at that shutter speed. But just to emphasize this, despite the finickiness of the VR system of this lens, I still absolutely love it and it's still one of my all-time favorite lenses. So don't let that scare you off. 
But anyway, you can sort of see the issues here, right? I've only listed a handful of lenses and scenarios, and even with just those combination, there's kind of a wide variance of recommendations here, so you do have to be careful, and it does vary a lot by lens. So I'm gonna give you an incredibly general guideline here. On most lenses, you're gonna be safe to use the VR system from 1 15th of a second to 1 500th of a second. However, this varies wildly by lens. So what I wanna emphasize here is that that's kind of the safe spot, works well with all lenses, but there's certainly lenses you can use slower and there's certainly lenses you can use faster. Don't think that that's like the only slot that you have. Now, I also believe that this can vary a little bit based on the mass of the camera body, how stable the lens is at the moment of release, how fast you are moving, if you're like panning or how smooth your starts and stops are, things like that. And there's probably about a dozen other variables I just can't think of at the moment. So the bottom line is that your best bet for discovering how good your lens's stabilization is and what shutter speeds it likes is to do this kind of wild and crazy thing where you head out to the field, go to a local park and use it in a variety of conditions and use it with a variety of shutter speeds, sometimes with VR, sometimes without. Try to be a little bit controlled in your testing, of course, but you know, just give it a try. My advice is to choose subjects that aren't really important to you. Things like seagulls at the beach are a great test subject, or maybe deer at your local park or something like that. And you know what? Just go out and play with various shutter speeds and see if you experience any significant loss of acuity at those higher shutter speeds or not, and just learn what those shutter speeds are that the lens VR system seems to like the best. And in addition, and this is probably the best piece of advice I can give you, I also recommend just turning off VR or stabilization if you have enough shutter speed to keep your lens and camera stable. That's what I do. Remember, VR doesn't do a thing for subject movement. Some people think it does. It does nothing for subject movement. VR only takes care of movement on your end of the equation here. So if you're not causing motion blur at a given shutter speed, you don't need VR. The only exception would be, you know, if you like the additional viewfinder stabilization it provides and you find that kind of essential, maybe you just can't stay on the subject if the viewfinder isn't stabilized. I have run across plenty of people who run into that problem. However, sometimes with practice, you can kind of overcome that. So the best advice for VR is if you're at a nice safe shutter speed, just shut the thing off if you don't need it. So enough VR talk, I think you get the idea. The basic guidelines are to use it when you need it and experiment to see if faster shutter speeds are gonna cause you a problem a loss of acuity, and if all else fails, you can just use that under 1 500th of a second guideline because that seems to work really well for most lenses. Next, let's tackle a few questions I found in my inbox over the last few weeks. The first is from David, and he is asking a question I get all the time. When using back button focus for shooting perch birds, when you lock on the eye, do you hold the AF on button down as you hit the shutter release, or do you let it go? The answer depends on whether I'm recomposing or not. If I'm recomposing the shot, if I have to focus and recompose because maybe the eye is outside my AF area there, then I lock on, I release the AF on button once I have a good focus lock, I recompose, and then I shoot. However, and this is the big however, if the composition I want allows me to place the AF point on the bird's eye, I'll move the AF point to that eye in a heartbeat and I'll keep that AF on button pressed as I fire away. 
The reason for this is simple. If the bird moves a little, or if I move a little, or if the AF lock isn't 100% perfect, the camera will continue to make minor focus adjustments as I shoot. Now, as long as you have the camera in AFC slash continuous servo mode, of course, which you should if you're using back button focus. Now, of course, with AF active, there's also a slight chance that it could lose the lock and start hunting, but the majority of the time, especially if the subject is not in terrible light, the camera will stay locked on. Now, as far as results go, most of the time when I do this, every image is sharp, including that first image that I took. So technically, I probably could have let go of the AF on button in most situations after I got the lock. However, there have been plenty of times when the initial lock wasn't as good as it could have been, especially if it was one of those situations where maybe I spotted a bird and only had a few seconds to get the shot. In those cases, you know how it goes, you get the lens point of the bird, you lock on, and you start shooting maybe before that lock is 100% perfect. The problem is in a situation like that, that sometimes the system, again, isn't quite locked on as you thought maybe it was, and you end up with a few of those initial images that are just a bit off. I know there are many times that had I just quickly focused and then let go of the AF on button, I would have been facing some disappointing CottonySoft images back home on the computer. And how do I know this? Well, simple, because in those particular sequences, the first image or two were not as sharp as the subsequent images after it. And the reason those other ones were sharp was simply because I kept on the AF on button. So if you can get the AF point to the eye, and it works compositionally, that's important too, keep focusing as you shoot. And of course, this applies to more than just birds. I do it for all of my wildlife subjects. And in fact, I like focusing this way so much that it's one of the primary reasons I'm starting to kind of favor mirrorless cameras a little bit. The option of focusing anywhere in that viewfinder kind of makes my mouth water a little bit there. I love that. All right, we've come to the point in the podcast where I do need to pay the bill, so I'll keep this short. If you enjoy these podcasts, I certainly hope you do. You should really check out my ebooks. I think you'd like them. I have one on wildlife photography, one on the Nikon autofocus system, and one on metering and exposure for Nikon. We're talking over 1,400 pages total between those three books, and it's super easy to digest, super easy to apply explained in a very straightforward, non-technical manner. So check them out at the site, backcountrygallery.com. I promise they'll change your photographic world. So let's move on to our next question. And this next question comes from Karen, and she's asking about the proper color space setting for her camera. Should it be Adobe RGB? or sRGB? Now, this is one of those questions I get several times a month, it seems like, and the answer is always easy if you're a raw shooter. It doesn't matter one bit. If you shoot raw, you can pick your color space after the fact. You don't have to do it or even worry about it in camera. This menu setting that you find on your camera only applies to JPEGs, at least for Nikon, and I assume pretty much all the other ones too. So there's no need to lose any sleep over this one at all. Just don't worry about it if you're shooting raw. Oh, and as a side note for Nikon shooters at least, and probably this applies to other brands as well, the same thing applies to high ISO noise reduction and even your picture profiles. It's really only a JPEG setting. They can be completely and totally altered in your raw processing software with zero loss in quality. 
However, do keep in mind that these settings will be applied to the embedded JPEG in your RAW file, so I do try to tend to keep high ISO noise reduction set to normal, and my picture profile is usually standard, sometimes neutral, depending on what I need. Now, one side note is that if you are using your camera manufacturer software for post-processing, for Nikon we have Capture NXD, for example, it will apply whatever those settings you have set in your camera to the RAW file upon import. Of course, you can still always change it because it's a RAW file and that's why we shoot RAW, right? On the other hand though, if you're using something like Lightroom or On One or Capture One or any of a dozen other third-party RAW processing software programs, they will usually set the color space for you automatically to something, you know, pretty good. And usually it's like Profoto RGB or possibly Adobe RGB. And you can usually fine-tune these options. I'm sure you can fine-tune the options in your preferences. So let's, anyhow, let's get back to color space specifically because I do want to mention something to my JPEG shooters out there. And it's not shoot raw instead. <laughs> if you are shooting JPEGs, color space is a different story and it does matter. And also this may be of interest to raw shooters when you think about exporting your raw files to JPEG. For the most part, sRGB is what you're gonna want for your JPEGs. And there are exceptions, we'll mention those in a moment. And first, yes, I realize Adobe RGB is the larger color space of the two. But the problem is it's not supported all that well on most displays and it can kind of make your images look sort of flat and off color. And honestly, I speak from experience. I have accidentally exported images in the Adobe RGB format, looked at them in a web browser and said, what is going on here? So sRGB is your friend. So sRGB is the safe bet here for most people. The only way I'd use Adobe RGB for JPEG images is if I was sending them to a magazine or publication right out of the camera, or if I was planning to send JPEGs off for prints right out of the camera. However, even then, I would verify the preferred color space with whoever I was sending the images to. In fact, many labs and magazines are just fine or even prefer sRGB. And in fact, I know for a fact that I have sent images in the Adobe or Profoto color space to magazines before, and the colors didn't look really, really good, and I know what they didn't do. They didn't get the color space correct on that. So anymore, when I send to magazines, I actually send them in sRGB, and the images I have published actually are looking a little better, so I'm leaving it alone. So anyway. Let's get to our final question. And the final question for this podcast comes from Jim. And he's asking, how do you know when to use a monopod, tripod, or maybe a beanbag? And honestly, you know, that's kind of a tricky question. The thing is, there's a lot of overlap here. There's going to be times you can get equally good results with all three, and you can maybe even throw hand-holding in there as well, and you're not going to be able to tell the difference. And that's some of the problem that we get into sometimes with this stuff. It's like people are looking for the best solution, but there's not a best solution. There's a lot of overlap. However, there are also times where only a tripod will do, and there are other times when a monopod kind of saves the day for me. So let me tell you kind of how I operate, and then you can adapt it to your shooting if you like. So for me personally, I try to use a tripod whenever I am facing slower shutter speeds since it's really the best support choice among those three. Usually, if I'm grabbing a monopod, it's because I'm facing shutter speeds too slow to successfully handhold, but I still need as much versatility and maneuverability as possible. So a monopod allows me to move around easier than a tripod, and it allows for much more rapid height changes. And that is really important because I only have to adjust one leg instead of three. And there are times, especially if you're shooting animals and trees, this is the one that I use all the time. 
if you're shooting animals and trees, they're often in little pockets of leaves and you have these little windows. And if you're trying to maneuver around, sometimes you need to change that height really, really quick. So for me, a monopod in that situation is a better choice than a tripod because I might miss the shot if I'm using a tripod. However, there is still the caveat that I need to have enough shutter speed for the monopod because I need a little more shutter speed usually with a monopod than I do a tripod. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I hope you're sitting down, but a monopod is not as stable as a tripod, right? <laughs> I hope you were sitting down. Now, as a side note, though, before I really get into that too deep, I do see a lot of people kind of underestimate the benefits of a tripod. It's often surprising to people when they really start using their first really good tripod for the first time, how much sharper their images are. And I've convinced more than a few workshop participants to just try their tripod for a few hours when we're out shooting and they suddenly discover their images are far sharper than they ever thought possible. It really does make a difference. So if you're not using one, you know, it should probably be your first choice. And then if you can't use it for some reason, that's when you go to the other options. So whenever I can, I do choose a tripod for the added stability. And as it turns out, most of the time, I actually can use that tripod. I'm not in such a terrible situation that I really demand the versatility of a monopod or hand-holding or a beanbag or something. Now, there's a lot of people who sacrifice the stability of the tripod because they think it's less maneuverable than it really is. But the majority of my regular wildlife shots are still done with three carbon fiber legs supporting the camera and the lens. Once you get good, at using a tripod, it takes practice just like everything else. You'll find it's really not the anchor dragging down your maneuverability that many people think it is. I mean, sure, there are times it's gonna be, you know, limiting, but more often than not, I can use it. Now, on the other hand, if I do have higher shutter speeds, I'll often use a monopod even if I can hand hold it. The monopod handles the weight of the heavy gear I use for a much longer duration than I can. I mean, and that is for sure. Hours and hours of hand holding a 600, you know what, you're gonna lose stability. Plus, even if I have a really fast, easily hand holdable shutter speed, like 4,000th of a second or something, if I have to hold the camera up for a prolonged period of time, my arms will still fatigue and I'm not as steady. And although I might not need the extra stability from my arms to avoid motion blur, it's tougher to keep an active subject in your viewfinder when your arms start making like grandma's jello. So there is definitely a use for a monopod, even if you don't need it for stability. Now, as for beanbags, if I do use one, it's usually because I'm in a vehicle of some sort. However, I'm also not married to them at all. I often just use a small piece of pipe foam insulation or even a pool noodle on the edge of the window instead and then I can kind of raise the window up and down a little bit if I want to adjust the height and you know it seems to work just as well and it's not a big bulky thing to deal with and be in the way all the time when I'm not using it so I kind of shy away from them in favor of the other stuff so I think about the only time I really use beanbags is probably like on a safari vehicle in Africa or something like that so all right, so I think that's about a wrap for this episode. Once again, though, I do want to thank everyone for those wonderful reviews you've been giving me over at iTunes. You know, that really does mean a lot to me. I really, truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to our next chat. Until then, happy shooting. And you know what? Remember to say hi if you ever see me out there in the field. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye.